Who are you, Lucas? Oh, no, that's wrong thing to say. <laughs> I don't know why. I'm just going to jump in. Panic. <laughs> <You're good. laughs> Thank you. Welcome to Feeling It, a podcast where we discuss TV, movies, pop culture, and whether or not we are feeling it. If this is your first time joining us, welcome to the show. And here we go. Come on, walk and talk. All right, here we go. You guys want to hear something neat? It's showtime! Hold your ears, folks. Here we go! See what you can do now. Take your position. All right, ladies, buckle up. Let's do this. Hold on to your butts. Seriously? Listen to me very, very carefully. Hey, it's me again. Eat him up. Enjoy. Hello and welcome, everyone. This week, we are talking about David Fincher's new Netflix release, Mank. I think the worst title of I hate saying that word, Mank. Oh, I love it. <laughs> Mank. I'm watching Mank, Mank tonight. Mank. <laughs> um, yeah, this is David Fincher's newest film. It's in black and white, and it's about the writing of Citizen Kane. Um, so before we get into all of that discussion, let's introduce ourselves and answer the question, what is your favorite black and white film that was released post-Technicolor, so didn't have to be in black and white? Sure, sure. Well, I am Sandra Onstutz. I'm a social media manager in Nashville, Tennessee. And I think there's a lot that are beautiful in black and white, but I didn't like the movie as much. Or there, I like the movie, but like the cinematography was just like, okay, I don't know why this is in black and white. Um... And this movie, I think, is the perfect blend of the two, which is A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. Um, I adore that movie. And, yeah, it really is really beautiful. That's a, that's a great pick. I'm Lucas Wright, a designer in Chicago. And I think I had, a very, I had a hard time narrowing down to my favorite versus which is the best, because I think that's what I like. When you talk about black and white, you're always talking about, I, I feel like, something that's trying to be important and austere. They're usually movies about that time period when most things were in black and white. But I think for me, one of the, one of the most interesting movies for me um, is *Raging Bull*, uh, Martin Scorsese's boxing film. And I think the black what the black and white does in that movie is I again I think I think he picked it for multiple reasons, but I, I do think it just makes it more visceral and more engaging uh, to have that movie set in black and white as opposed to just you know movies about this is the time period and so we're gonna do it in black and white. But. I really, really thought you were going to say Francis Ha. Uh, yeah. I, I just feel that, like you have a particular affinity for that film. I really, I, I love yeah. Francis Ha, but I love Raging Bull more. <laughs> yeah. Um, the one, the one I was, I was, I was down between was um, Raging Bull and Good Night and Good Luck. George Clooney's. Um, Good Night and Good movie. Luck was also on my list, um, and like I didn't like Roma that much, but I can't. But Roma is so beautiful to look at. Like, when you think of beautiful mm-hmm. films, like, shot in black and white in modern day, Roma immediately pops to mind. Uh, I feel the exact same way. It's absolutely a beautiful film. It is not one of my favorites, but it just looks so good. Sure. <laughs> Have you seen A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night? I still haven't. No. It's been on the list for a long You'll time. You'll love it. Okay. You'll love it so much. All right. It's, yeah. I'll do it. I Like, you'll absolutely love it. <laughs> I've never seen Raging Bull. Oh, I don't think you'll and, love it. <laughs> uh, great. Thanks. I'm glad that we know each other. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Well, before we get into our conversation about Mac, we are going to talk about what we're feeling this week. Sandra, s- tell us about something that you've either discovered or rediscovered throughout this week. Okay. So I am. I have a list of movies that have come out in 2020 that I'm trying to work my way through, you know, keep, you know, 
this has been a weird year, and I'm just trying to see, like, what are the new releases that I actually want to watch? Um, and I heard, saw this move. I saw this trailer on YouTube for a movie that I had heard not a single person talking about, okay? No marketing at all other than just coming across a trailer on YouTube. And, of course, I love to watch trailers on YouTube, so I watched it and thought it seemed, like, really interesting and added it to my list. Um, and then, with it being on my list on Letterboxd, I started seeing a few people I know watch this movie and say, like, wow, this movie is surprisingly good. And so that made me even more interested in it. And I decided to watch it in... Um, I, I had to, I needed to fly home for Thanksgiving. And so, like, cuddled in a corner, of trying to avoid everyone wearing a face shield in an airport for two hours. I was like, maybe now is a good time to, like, watch a movie. <laughs> and so I decided to pick this movie, and it's called Spontaneous. Um, it is a sort of a, a teen comedy romance with, like, a very, um, unique premise. Um, and the premise is that there's a group of teens at a certain high school in a certain part of the country where, um, one day one of their classmates spontaneously combusts and just blows up. And everyone, no one knows why there's no bomb. There's no, it's just like, you know, they just popped and then the the classmates one by one start blowing up and no one knows why at this you know in this one particular high school and so it's about teens um living through something traumatic and also still being teenagers and falling in love and making jokes and um and it is a movie that is you know, for obvious reasons, devastatingly timely right now. And um, I was so surprised at how funny and heartbreaking and romantic this movie was. Um, it totally caught me, off, caught me off guard. It's one of the most original teen films I think I've ever seen. You know, it, I've never seen a movie do ex exactly what this movie is doing. Um... It does have, you know, if you, Lucas, I don't know that I'm particularly recommending this movie for you because I know how you feel about teenagers. Um, you make me sound like the Grinch. This, uh, are you not? <laughs> um, but because this movie does like really play into like, these are teenagers being teenagers. Like their humor is of teen of a teen nature, you know. They curse excessively in a way that, like, if this if these were adults, you'd be like, "Wow, you are lame that you're cursing this much." You know what I mean? And um, there is a little bit of like manic pixie dream girl um, ness to the characters, but in a way that I find really really charming. Um, I think it helps that like the most manic pixie dream girl of the characters is the main character and not the main character's love interest. Um, she is the main character. And I think that helps narratively. Um, and it's just a really, really lovely film. I found myself sobbing while I was watching it. 
um, because it really like hits you in the gut with um, its emotions. And like I said, it's it's about you know people dying too young and no one knows why and no one knows how to stop it and that feels like a pretty raw subject right now. Um, so I highly recommend this because while it does have like a lot of sadness to it, it is also very funny. And, um, if you like, if you appreciate like a good teen comedy, this is like the one for our time, I think. Um, yeah, I, I adored it. Have you heard of this movie at all? I have. Um, I think the same situation as you, just watching a trailer on YouTube. Um, and I think I so I l- really enjoy this trailer. I think it's it feels very like a like a real teen comedy. I think I think there are a lot of teen comedies that feel like oh this is written and directed by someone who's probably in their forties, you know, and they're talking mm-hmm. about what they think teenagers are like. Um, right. A lot of the you know the jokes and stuff again from the trailer are feel very you know natural and real, and it just feels like a very fun. Um, fun movie i don't know what the analogy is because i haven't watched it yet but i i I, it's it seems exciting and i think i think it'd be something that i might be interested in we'll see i mean maybe you should watch it because the only thing i think that you will bristle against is how like again just how much they lean into like these are teenagers being teenagers yeah you know um which is what i think is really great about it that like even though these teenagers are going through something like very adult um, they, they, they are not adults, so yeah. they're not treating it like adults would, you know, Yeah. with like the gravitas at, at, you know, that adults would. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I think that that is really what makes the movie, but I could see you just like being like, yeah, not for me. <laughs> um, but I think it's, a, I think it's great and maybe you should watch it and I would love to hear what you think yeah. of it when you do. Sounds good. And also it reminds me of, um, book smart in a lot of ways that like, this I feel just like it's like a stacked cast of like unknown young actors, mm-hmm. like a bunch of actors I'd never seen perf- in any movie before other than the main two leads. And it's like, oh, I can't wait to watch a bunch of these people and other projects like this is a I would hope I hope that this is like a stepping stone for a lot of actors because um, they're very good in it. And the two leads, it stars um, Charlie Plummer and Catherine Langford, who I have both seen before, but neither of them are, like, A-list actors, right? Yeah. Like, they're not household names. But I've seen them in projects before. I am so smitten by both of them. Like, I think they kill it in these roles. And they both have done, like, teen romance or teen dramas before. And this is the first time I've seen them where I think they get to, like, really shine in their roles. So... That's yeah. great. Really, really exciting. Yeah. Yeah. What are well, you feeling this week? Um, I am feeling. I changed this at the last minute because I uh, watched a movie last night that I really loved. Um, it's called The Sound of Metal. Um, it is a movie starring Riz Ahmed and Olivia Cook. Um, this is a movie about a um, a metal drummer who starts to lose his hearing, um, and him having to deal with um, kind of what 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 that means for his life and his career and his. Um, you know, his relationships and having to com- completely change <laughs> what he thought the future was going to be like. Um, I think Riz Ahmed in this is absolutely fantastic. I think it's a really beautiful picture. Um, it does a lot with the sound. Um, 
to kind of give you this to you're in his head a lot of the times so of just kind of hearing what he's hearing which is you know little to nothing um and then you know then being put in environments where he you know everybody else is communicating and he can't and then moving to you know a deaf community where same situation everyone else is communicating and he can't um and so him having to kind of adjust and learn um so it's a, i mean it's a beautiful story about like what it's like to change your life um there's a lot about you know love and relationships as well as addiction um and i think it's truly truly a great movie it's uh, it's available on amazon prime streaming um, and it's meant to be watched with subtitles. So I think by default, subtitles are on. Um, and I would highly recommend watching it with subtitles because I think that that's kind of part of the experience that it gives you. Um, have you heard of this movie? I've definitely heard of it. And, you know, it was one of those movies that, like, you kind of barely hear about. And you're like, I don't know if I'm interested in that. Yeah. And then you keep and keep hearing people talk about it. And you're like, wow, maybe I definitely <laughs> should be interested in that. And I think Riz Ahmed is, a, is incredible just in general. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I literally, as you're talking, I added it to my list of things to watch. Good, it's 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 really great. I, <laughs> it's funny. I originally showed it showed the trailer to Rebecca and Rebecca's like, I don't like metal music, and I was like, I don't think there's going to be a ton of metal music in this movie. <laughs> so, yeah, um, the sound might be a little bit confusing, but this is not about metal music. It is about a metal drummer um, who no longer is able to metal drum. So it's it's really a beautiful beautiful movie. It's directed by the guy who um, co-wrote Place Beyond the Pines. Um, so it's mm. got a lot of that kind of raw, like there's a lot of actors who aren't act or who haven't been actors before. A lot of people you haven't seen before just kind of, it feels very real and lived in. Um, I, I thought it was beautiful. I really enjoyed that movie. Awesome. It's on Amazon Prime. I highly recommend everybody check it out. Okay. We are going to transition to talking about Mank stuff. But before we get into that, we are going to talk about Citizen Kane. Because Mank is about the writing of Citizen Kane, uh, we both watched Citizen Kane. Um, not for the first time, correct? Correct. Okay, so we both rewatched Citizen Kane, um, which is available somewhere. HBO Max. HBO Max, that's right. <laughs> I was like, I know I streamed it somewhere. I don't know where. Yeah. Um, HBO Max, which... There's a lot to talk about there with HBO Max getting all of the movies of 2021, as well as... Do we want to talk about that first? Let's, yeah, let's do that real quick. So Warner Brothers announced that um, they will just... They decided right now they're releasing all of their 2021 movies to HBO Max. So what will happen is it'll get a 30-day span on HBO Max uh, at the same time that it gets released in, again, whatever theaters are open at the time. Um, after those 30 days on HBO Max, it will then be removed um, to continue its theatrical run. Um, so that's just kind of them hedging their bets on the theater experience on what will be open. Um, obviously I think theaters are going to make more money for the studio. So that is their preferred method, but they also can't just keep holding all of their, uh, movies forever. So I think this is a, a, a good play on the, on the studio. I'm curious if other studios will start to follow this. I think it's absolutely great for HBO max. They've done a great job of kind of fill, filling out their library anyway, and if they're going to have 30 days of just whatever is new constantly there from Warner Brothers, I think that's going to be quite an incredible year for them. Yeah. it It's so fascinating, though, that <laughs> this is like a minor aspect of this, but that HEO Max still hasn't figured out, like, its Roku <laughs> issues. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so it's, like, cool that they're, you know, putting – 
all their, you know, new releases on HBO Max, except so many people in the country use Roku. Like, we, you and I both have Apple TVs. Yeah. But that is not the general consensus. Like, most people I know use Roku as their main streaming platform. Um, And the fact that HBO Max hasn't figured out their Roku issue is mind-blowing to me. Um, and so it's like, sure, it might be available, but like the, I would think the main thing, way to get new subscribers is to like fix this issue <laughs> that is causing that so many people can't access your platform. Yeah. Um, and I know that that's not the main reason they're doing it. It's just something that's been on my mind. Um, but here's my question and maybe you have the answer to this. So like HBO, so Warner brothers owns HBO max, right? Yes. So you know, driving their own films, they're losing ticket prices, but they're driving revenue to like their the streaming service that they own. Um, obviously, we know Disney has the same mechanism that they could do. You know, they have their own streaming service that they could put their own stuff on, and they're starting to do that slowly but surely. So, do any other studios own their own platform? I mean, or would they have to be making deals with Netflix? Amazon, you know, right. So I think I think that is the deal. I think so. Warner Brothers is a distribution studio. So there's there's the two there's the two setups. There's the production studio and then the distribution right. studio. And so mo- usually how this works is a production studio sells it to a distribution studio and then the distribution studio puts it into theaters. Um, the only the only studio that has a production studio that is uh, connected to a distribution studio and has a streaming service is Netflix. So Netflix has it kind of all in house, but they're also buying right. from production studios. No one else has kind of the three in one. Um, and I and I, HB, uh, I mean H, I don't count HBO movies as like movies that are made for HBO. Kind of, mm. I I think of that as a separate thing. Um, so it's because I was going to say they have done that before, but this is. I think this is different because there was the expectation of a theatrical run anyway. So totally all that to say, no, I think Netflix is the closest thing. Um, so right. I, so I don't think anybody else would be able to do something like this. They would have to make those deals with the, with the streaming service slash um, distributor, which is difficult. I feel like, but I do yeah. think because this happened, I think other uh, studios might start to do that is start to have those conversations with the streamers. But I think other yeah. streaming services aren't going to want to do a limited window. If it's coming to streaming, they want it on streaming. Exactly. Which is like the thing that like Disney and HBO, they can like say, we set our own terms because it's our own content. You know, like we can say we're only going to have it up for this amount of time or, or Disney can try to re- sell Mulan for $30. You know, like, um, they can play around with that in a way that, you know, Netflix probably isn't going to. Um, the other thing is, you know, I think what I read, and I could be wrong about this, is that Warner Brothers, like, said, like, this is just a COVID measure. Like, this isn't going to be something that we're planning on doing permanently, but we're doing, like, during the pandemic because of this time. And I'm very curious, though, because they said, it like, they're doing all their 2021 slate and like, what if like we have a vaccine in the middle of 2021? What if theaters start operating at full capacity by like the fall hypothetically, you know, like does that, do they then 
change course or do they say like, no, we're just going to keep doing this because we decided to do it for the whole year. I'm very curious about that as well. Yeah. I think, I think HBO max is in a really good position and I, because I think it's so flexible (laughs) that, you know, as the year goes on, they can, they can change their minds and they can kind of pull back on it. Um, And so we'll, again, we'll see where theaters are at, but I mean, it kind of makes me more excited. Um, for, for all the HBO Max content, but uh, also very sad for the theaters. <laughs> yeah. And, like, I'm I'm incredibly sad for theaters. and But maybe I'm just become jaded, you know, that, yeah. like, about the theatrical experience and how it's going to survive or not, you know? Um, mm-hmm. Part of me is just kind of like, I, I don't know. It, it just looks so bleak that, it, that this doesn't make me more sad. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, what does make me sad is like when I think selfishly about like specific movies that Warner Brothers was planning on releasing that I might not get a chance to see in a theater, particularly like Dune. Mm -hmm. So Dune and In the Heights are two movies that I'm incredibly excited about. The Matrix 4. (laughs) Yes. Um, and you know, I saw The Matrix for the first time this summer. Um, Oh, we'll have to talk about that. (laughs) Yeah. We need to, I still need to watch the sequels. Um. But yeah, so In the Heights and Dune are movies that I thought, you know, that is a movie where I want to see on a big screen, you know, with a theater audience. And I will be happy if I can watch it at home, but it won't be the same. Whereas a lot of movies, I don't think like I need a theater, you know, to, to fully enjoy it. Dune is one of them where I really, really would like a theater. Yeah. And... If Dune comes out and it's not safe to go to theaters yet, I will be grateful that I will still get to participate in that conversation, that I'm not just like, that they're not just releasing it in theaters and I'm like, well, it's not safe, so I'm not going to go and I'm just not going to see it. Right. Some people are going to see it. The whole tenant Um, situation. (laughs) Exactly. I'll be grateful that I will get a chance to see it, but very, very sad at like missing the theatrical experience yeah where whereas i'm looking at the list of movies there are some of the movies where it's like uh, honestly it'll be perfect this will probably be better on a streaming site like space jam a new legacy the the space jam remake with lebron james i'm actually really looking forward to but i have no need to see that in a theater that feels like a perfect thing to stream on a friday night I agree. I'm looking at their schedule, and Dune was pushed to October 2021. So mm. there is a good chance that theaters might be safe enough to go to in October yeah. of next year. So now I'm actually just looking at that, honestly, made me feel a lot better. <laughs> um, I'm In the Heights, I think, is still scheduled for the summer. Yeah, June 18th. So that's a little bit more on the edge. I think. I think with um, where the vaccines are at. Everything is just up in the air, timing-wise. Right. So we'll we'll see how it goes. But, I, again, it's not something that I'm super worried about. Um, but, I mean, it does make me a little bit sad <laughs> yeah. that we're still in this situation. So. Yeah. Um, so all that to say, we watched Citizen Kane <laughs> on HBO Max. On HBO Max. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I going into this, 
we knew we were going to talk about Mank, so we watched Citizen Kane. So I'd love to hear your thoughts just high level on Citizen Kane before we dig into the Mank of it Sure. So when did you first watch Citizen Kane? I watched Citizen Kane, I think, like in high school or college. Like it was, it's, yeah. it's, it's been a minute. So I, I went into it yeah. kind of remembering nothing about the story. Um, just the fact that it's, you know, right. old. I... We had, um, like, summer reading lists in high school, and one summer on our reading list, we also were assigned to watch Citizen Kane, and in my small, small Texas town, it was impossible to find a copy of Citizen Kane. (laughs) We had to, like, special order it on the internet, which was, like, not a thing that we were, you know, doing all the time (laughs) back in high school. There was no Amazon. Yeah. And... Then I, like, one of us ordered a DVD, and so then we'd have, like, all of our friends over to watch it, since we were all assigned this movie. <laughs> um, and I don't remember, like, I don't remember anything from that experience, other than I remembered the ending. You know, I don't, I think when I watched it in high school, I was like, and you know, I still can fall into this trap, but very much so in high school, I was like, this is old. This is black and white. I don't <laughs> care. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so, like, I don't think I, I cared about it at all. And I just remembered, I, I, I caught, I understood what the ending was. And that is the one thing that stuck with me all these years is even though when I was gearing up to watch it re- before Mank, I couldn't even remember really the plot. I just remembered <laughs> the ending. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um. Um. I I'm kind of in the similar boat is just that like that. And, and I think I think the thing for me was as a kid watching it, it's the movie is kind of set up like a mystery of just like, what is Rosebud? And you go right. through the whole movie trying to figure out what Rosebud is. And I feel like I'm not going to spoil Citizen Kane for anybody, but I feel like the ending at the time, I felt like the ending was uh, lackluster. <laughs> <laughs> and when you were in high school, when I, yeah, when I was, was in high school, cluster? I was like, I was like, that's not, that's not as cool as I wanted it to be. I think I just built up the mystery more than I think it needed to be. Um, and I think watching it again now as an adult, I think knowing what that mystery is um, the whole time, and it's, I, I think it's not a mystery. I think this is a story of a reporter just going through, and this is his through line of just like trying to find out more about the man. Um, I think it's more interesting now than I thought it was as a kid because I was very focused on what is the mystery? How do I figure out the mystery? And this isn't a movie about trying to figure out the mystery. It's just about accepting, <laughs> you know, this the story as it comes to you. Um, and so I think I liked it a lot more. But I'm yeah, I'm curious what you thought of it the second time through. I really liked it. Yeah. I thought it one. That's it's beautiful to look at. Like mm-hmm. I think visually, it's like you know, obviously limited for its time, but also incredible for its time um you know one thing i think that really surprised me watching it as an adult was just how funny it was yeah Um, much funnier than i remembered (laughs) but it's very funny yeah i found myself just really laughing throughout it and just like being really taken aback by the moments of comedy in it um this is like the most late take ever, but like, wow, or so well. I was like, wow, Orson Welles, what a perf- what an actor. <laughs> yeah, the perfect um, twenty twenty take. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Especially in the scenes when he's like really young and just starting. Yeah 
to take ownership of the paper. Young and um, wearing a tuxedo with the his shirt halfway open. <laughs> yes. Uh, I was like, what a dream. And it was very interesting also to see, like, wh- how did how good of a job they did with aging him through the years when he was like 24 i think when he made this yeah. movie yeah yeah uh, aging everybody you know, like there's a lot of old age makeup right. in this movie <laughs> right but particularly him yeah. right because like i think his is the most you see him the most on screen yeah and um like really i think very convincingly pulling it off mm-hmm. um that he was you know playing someone 24 his own age through like whatever age Citizen Kane is when he dies, like, you know, his 70s or 80s or whatever. Um, And, yeah, I I was so fascinated by it. Um, I think the movie's great, and I think, like, you know, I was... uh, There's a phrase, like, that's in, like, our political landscape that's, like, there's no ethical billionaires, right? And it's like, oh, this is not a new idea. (laughs) This is an idea... That was being made, like, touted in Citizen Kane, you know, years and years and years ago. Um, So, yeah, I I think I loved it. I thought it was really, really good. And it's not, it it moves. That's the other thing. It has a great pace. And I think my main concern when I think about watching, like, a classic or an older film, I'm always kind of like, this movie's going to be so slow. It's going to be so boring (laughs) and so slow. Yeah. People were so slow, <laughs> and, and I don't think that this movie has that problem. It definitely doesn't. I think the way it's written, the way it cuts, um, it's, it's paced really well. It's telling a story in, I think, what feels like a new way for the time. Um, and so, yeah, I I really enjoyed it. And I think it did feel a little bit like homework for Mank, of like, I'm watching this so that I can right. <laughs> better understand where Mank's coming from. Um, but I enjoyed it on its own, and I had a lot of fun so yeah now i'm curious watching that do you feel like it's necessary to watch citizen kane or have a good knowledge of citizen kane going into mank or do you feel like mank can stand alone on its own it is 100 percent necessary i don't think i think if you've never seen citizen kane mank will be a jumbled mess to you i 100 um, percent agree i think make is incomprehensible for anybody who hasn't watched Re- citizen kane or hasn't watched citizen kane recently or agree. might even yeah. have a lot of the just film knowledge around citizen kane i feel like if you don't know all of that stuff mank is probably gonna make no sense yeah mank i mean i feel like i didn't have a lot of knowledge other than i watched citizen kane the same day i watched mank so it was like real fresh yeah. and so I had that context, but so much of the historical context of Mank, I really didn't have, and I found myself Googling constantly throughout mm, the movie yeah. because I was missing that context. Yeah. Um, and historical context, that is something that it's like, you either have it or you don't, you know? And so I don't fault a movie for including that, Um because, yeah, it's like some people it's going to make sense to and some people it isn't. Um, with Citizen Kane, I also don't – I think it's okay for a movie for you to have to do a little homework before you watch a movie. But I think that, like, that needs to be really well known. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I think everyone should know, like, you have to watch Citizen Kane before you watch a Yeah. I think there are – there are historical 
movies where it doesn't matter. Like you don't have to know it because they're going to tell it to you. And then there are movies that you don't have to know it because they're not going to tell it to you. And it's going to be kind of either surprising or something that you find out later or something like that. Um, This to me just feels like they went through Mank and were like, well, yeah, this is all stuff everybody knows. So, you know, this is obvious knowledge when it's not for the majority of people about, you know, the, the, um, the conflict about the making of Citizen Kane in the writing and, and how much of it was based on um, William Randolph Hearst um, and kind of the relationships there. So it's it's I think it's very inside Hollywood, which Hollywood's going to absolutely love. Um, but I'm very curious to see what the real world <laughs> feels about a movie that comes to streaming on Netflix and is very deep in the tank for um, the Hollywood lore um, that most well, people don't know anything about. And here's the other thing. It's like people like me, I consider myself a film buff yeah i saw citizen kane you know what i mean it's not like i but if i had watched mank without watching citizen kane recently all i would have known were the references to the ending um <laughs> yeah and and literally that's it like every other reference would have gone completely over my head because i saw it you know over 10 years ago in high school when i was a teenager yeah and so i think that's even for people who have already seen it, you know, it's one of those things where it really needs to be something you've seen recently and not. um, So even people who consider themselves pretty literate in film would still probably have trouble watching this if they hadn't seen Citizen Kane. Definitely. Very frequently. Definitely. Recently, not frequently. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So to that point, then did you like Mank? Um, I think Mank is really, really good. Um, there are aspects of rank, rank, oh God, <laughs> Mank. <laughs> there are aspects, aspects of Mank that confound me. <laughs> um, truly, I'm just like, I don't know why these choices were made. Um, but other than that, I think it's very good. I think David Fincher is a great filmmaker and visually storytelling wise, I'm I'm pretty much always like enchanted by his work. Um, So it was no surprise that I was also, when I was watching this movie, it was like a a great movie that has big flaws for me. I'm kind of in the same boat. I, (laughs) I liked the movie. um, I think because I had done a lot of the homework, Um, but the whole time I was watching it, I was kind of like, you I was like, I was like, there are some things that I still do have to look up. um, And, the whole time I was picturing watching this with anybody else and just thinking this makes like, this makes no sense. None of this makes sense. That being said, what my experience of it was good and I did enjoy it. And I think I actually went back and watched certain scenes again. That is one thing that I do love about Netflix releases is immediately you can just go back and watch stuff. And I think David Fincher as a director is absolutely incredible. All of his stuff is great. Um, And so there are certain scenes in here that are just absolutely like perfectly executed and very fun to watch. Um, and so a lot of those things, I was like, I like this. I'm going to go back and watch these clips. The movie as a whole, I don't know if I would ever recommend to just about anybody. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I would only ever recommend it to people like you and me who like obsessively watch movies, Yeah, you know, yeah. which um, is shocking because this is the big netflix release of the year this is like last year's irishman or the year before that's roma which as i'm saying that i'm realizing how dumb that is because that's exactly what those movies are are they're very like film twitter type movies that 
I think most yeah. people aren't going to watch. But I do think because of the big hype around those movies, people did watch The Irishman and Roma. But well, people watch The Irishman because Martin Scorsese is a very different filmmaker than a black and white. The Irishman is like supposed to be like a mafia movie, even though at its heart it's like this like personal drama, you know? That's true. Um, I still haven't seen The Irishman. This is just like me <laughs> talking about what I think it is. Oh, but, man. like, The Irishman is the kind of movie that your parents do want to see, right? Yeah. They know Robert De Niro. They know Martin Scorsese. This seems like their kind of movie. Roma and Mank are not the kind of movies that, like, your parents might just put on on a mm-hmm. Tuesday night. Yeah. At least not my parents. Uh, I don't no. know about yours. No. <laughs> <laughs> um. Here's the thing about Mank and Roma, though. Like, they are movies that, like, everyone in Hollywood would watch. Uh And because of that, they are going to have amazingly huge Oscar buzz. And that's who they're for, you know? Yeah. And films made for, by Hollywood, for Hollywood only, sometimes are great. But oftentimes, I find, you know, have this, like, limiting nature to them by by design and it kind of just feels like okay well that one was for y'all i hope you had fun with it definitely you know and i do think a lot of times those types of movies can be a little too um pat ourselves on the back about you know the power of hollywood and how great hollywood is and has always been and all of this and i do think this gets at a little of the manipulate the, the manipulation that hollywood does um and uh, sometimes sometimes movies do that and say like oh, that was in the past you know and but this one i right. i do feel feels more relevant of like this is how right. hollywood studios work and this is how they will always work and you just yeah. got to do what you got to do but again i mean it ends on a note of but you know there's nothing better than the movies so <laughs> yeah um well and i think yeah i think you're right what i do like about this movie is that like david fincher specific like like bitter sentimentality Mm -hmm. right that's like he has like such a great way of being cynical about things and still like showing them showcasing them lovingly yeah um and that that he is using this as like a political warning and like a political truth telling mission um I, I found really, really cool and smart as the way I often find David mm-hmm. Fincher to be smart. Yeah. Um, and I think, I mean, we can get into the <laughs> the actual acting of it all, but I think the way he that he handles all of these actors um, is incredible. I think this is probably my my favorite Lily. I always get a mixed up. Lily James and Lily Collins. This is Lily Collins. Collins. Yes. Um this is probably my favorite Lily Collins performance. Um, uh, she's not in this movie that much, but I, I do feel like she's exceptional in it. It's my favorite um, Amanda Seyfried performance. Um, she's absolutely amazing in this movie. Um, and I could take or leave Gary Oldman. <laughs> I mean, here's where, when I was mentioning earlier that there are some major flaws to this film, yeah. I'm primarily thinking about casting. Yeah. And I'll say that, Amanda Seyfried is amazing in this movie. Like, what a knockout performance. Yeah. I I love Amanda. I've always liked Amanda Seyfried, but this is, I think, one of those first times where you're like, oh, wow, you should be a huge movie star. Yeah. And um, I hope she gets some Oscar attention for this performance because she's amazing. Yeah. 
Um, I, I thought Lily Collins was very not good. Really? Really? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And I'm going to admit, maybe this is just a bias I have towards Lily Collins. <laughs> like, From what? What is, what has she been in that you don't like? That's the thing, is that, like, I've only, I don't think I've seen her in a lot of stuff. I'm trying to look at her IMDb and see what I have seen her in, and it's not really much of anything. She's not in but good things, usually. That, so. And I think that that might be my prejudice, is that, like, she's usually in bad things, <laughs> and I see those trailers for those bad things and her in them, and I'm always kind of like, yeah. well, you know? I, that's think, what I, uh, I, I think that's why I was so and, surprised, because I was like, oh, she's actually good. <laughs> in this role, I just, you know, I'm not saying she was actively bad, mm-hmm. but it was just kind of, it, it didn't do anything for me, and it just kind of felt like you could have cast someone really interesting and talented in that role, and instead you cast someone as pretty as lily collins that's really yeah. mean and bitchy i hate that i hate being like this but that's how i felt um oh, but the real issue for me is gary oldman like and it's not even like gary oldman's acting Some, certain scenes i was like wow gary oldman i get it he's a good actor certain mm-hmm. scenes i was kind of like i don't know if this is really working for me this performance but for me the biggest issue is Gary Oldman is 62. Okay? I know, yeah. <laughs> I can, I honestly, I can give a little leeway in casting actors that are not the age of the character they're meant to be playing. You know, I understand that this is Hollywood and we're all putting forth a little mis- disbelief, you know, setting aside our disbelief. But Gary Oldman is 62 and his character is supposed to be in his 30s and then 40s in the two different time periods <laughs> that this movie is taking place. And that is, and he doesn't like, he's not like one of those actors that like is 62, but he actually looks 45. Yeah. You know, <laughs> there are actors like that. I mean, you know, Paul Rudd is in his 50s. I think he's like, but he doesn't look it, yeah. you know? Yeah. Gary Oldman looks 62. <laughs> And it was so, it really felt so bizarre to watch him, to have, he has all these peers that are actors playing what you assume is the correct age, and then this 62-year-old man amongst them, all of them. Yeah. And it's even more bizarre that his, the the actress playing his wife is 30 years younger than him. So you're, you're that is what really sets it off, right, is this like very very visual age gap between his character and his wife's and his wife and that's always a pet peeve of mine but it yeah it really plays it up here <laughs> it's so noticeable like it's extre- she really looks so much younger than him and so you know it made me like it was so obvious that it made me start googling while i was watching like how old was mank like when all this was happening because is this accurate like did he have like a wife that was 30 years younger than him maybe that's part of like his you know myth right or not myth but like his legend yeah and nope (laughs) then i google it i'm like oh no gary oldman is just much older than this character is yeah and you know you know also in the movie you have like Amanda Seyfried is playing someone who is 30 her character is 30 years younger than her lover, right? Yeah. But that is accurate. Like right. that relationship actually what was like a almost 30 year age gap. And 
so so that feels and and it is kind of set up that way too you know the character um it, it's it feels appropriate and this with the, Gary Oldman it's just so distracting mm-hmm. and i just don't think that Gary Oldman is as amazing of a performer to justify how distracting it is. <laughs> it's like, I, I just, I really do believe you could have found someone in their forties. That was a good actor. I don't know. I think that their Hollywood has them. You so know? originally when this movie was getting, was planning, I think on getting made in the nineties, it was originally going to be Jodie Foster as the Amanda Seyfried role and Kevin Spacey as Mank. And I think that, because at the time age wise, that, that would have worked out. But I do think Kevin Spacey, just to be clear, very against Kevin Spacey. But I I think he has a little more of that sinisterness that I think just naturally could play well into this Mank role. And as opposed to like Mank being the fun one that everybody's, you know, hanging out with. I think what gives him the sinisterness is that he's older than everybody in this movie, <laughs> which I don't think is intentional. Yeah. Um, but I think... I think you have to have a little bit of that uh, that weirdness about him, which I think Kevin Spacey would have brought perfectly because he has that kind of – he has that cringeness um, in everything that he plays. Um, and right. he would have been the right age at the time. So I think I think it honestly would have worked better. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm reading the trivia page yeah. for Mank, and I just found something that I find a little disturbing. What? You know my reservations about Gary Oldman about like how he has – an abuse allegation yes. from one of his ex-wives, which I've tried to, like, reconcile, you know? Mm-hmm. I just found out that that same ex-wife that has made that accusation is also David Fincher's ex-wife. Wait, they have the same ex-wife? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Don't love that. I really don't, like, <laughs> love that. That colors a lot, It colors a whole lot. Just This trivia piece says, Oof. it is rumored that Fincher, her, her last name is Fiorentino. Mm-hmm. It is rumored that Fincher's and Oldman's troubled experiences with Fiorentino became a strong inspiration for directing Gone Girl. <laughs> <laughs> well, that colors Gone Girl in a way that I don't like either. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it helps that Gone Girl was like a novel that was written by, yeah. some, you know, like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that was just a real sticking point for me. And yeah. it just feels like a str- just a strange, strange choice to make. It, yeah, yeah. Um, but you know they have a shared you know wife, so that's, yeah. that's why you, why you cast <laughs> such a. I don't like I, I don't like any of this now. Um, right, <laughs> I know. Um, I I do want to talk before we get into spoilers about one thing that I really did love about the movie, other than Amanda Seyfried's mm-hmm. performance, which. I mean, here's the thing. This movie just really made me wish that this was a Marion Davis movie with Amanda Seyfried as the star. Yeah. She was so good. Yeah. Um, what I did love that, like, I think David Fincher did so well is, I mean, obviously the movie looks amazing. Like, that's no surprise. Mm-hmm. But it's the sound design for this movie is, I think, very, very specific and, and fascinating. Um I don't, uh, maybe I'm just imagining this and maybe this was just my home theater speakers, but it sounded like it was being played in a movie theater. Yeah. Did you, did you experience yeah, that? Definitely. I think the sound design is, it's one of the things that I was most impressed of, of with right off the bat is because again, I do feel like he's um, kind of aping that older sound, but not, um, I guess not in a way that's like slavish to it. Like I think he's doing right. it in a way that 
that makes you feel like that, but also um, you're getting a lot of the the great quality of modern day sound. Um, and so it, I, which I think is really, I think he's doing the same thing with with the visuals as well as he's aping some of those um, uh, visual tech techniques, you know, camera moves, uh, what is it, cigarette burns, like stuff like that on the on the. Mm-hmm. on a film that is shot digitally um so i think i think it really is the best yeah. of both worlds which is fun um yeah i i just kept it wasn't distracting but every now and then i would be like wow this doesn't sound like the rest of my movie sound when i'm streaming it sounds like it was it sounds like it's older and it also sounds like this is something meant like that i'm watching in a theater with people and that's pretty yeah, magical i agree um i also think that the way it's written um, a lot of the dialogue um, is not the way it's written. The way the way the audio is recorded, a lot of the dialogue feels um, more like boomy and uh, I think more I guess interesting. Um, a lot of it is ri- or recorded, not not recorded. A lot of the dialogue that's spoken is spoken in kind of big rooms and you know you know large uh, you know cavernous places that you get a lot of echo but even the right. even the 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 dialogue that's in you know smaller smaller rooms or even outside kind of has that quality of like these are important things and so um <laughs> uh, it's yeah it's just fun to hear like that kind of sound design which isn't necessarily trying to be realistic so right right and i mean we should say like visually the costumes the sets everything what like how transported i was you yeah. know yeah, yeah. Just remarkable. Um, you want to talk spoilers? Um, yeah, I really do. Okay. Before we get started, does anyone want to get out? Are you paying attention? It's your last chance to walk away. Let me tell you what's going to happen. No, cracking gas. Spoilers! Remember, you wanted this. So a lot of this movie is about him writing Citizen Kane. Um, Mostly without Orson Welles' involvement. I know a lot of the, I think, film Twitter controversy that comes out of this is how much was Orson Welles involved in Citizen Kane before this? You know, are are, mm. are you cutting Orson Welles out of the story by um, just focusing on Mink? I don't honestly care about any of that at all. Um, right. I, I, I think it's... Me either. Yeah, it's, none of that is interesting <laughs> to me. Um, but I do think at the end, the conversation about them arguing over credit, um, I think... That part is interesting to me because what he what Orson Welles is proposing is just like I'll buy out the script from you, which apparently is something that's doable at the time <laughs> um, yeah. before the Writers Guild. And as they're talking about with new Writers Guild rules, he wants credit, and this is how it should be. And I think that's the part that didn't necessarily um, drive home with me. Of like, yes, this is something that that this character has been building toward this whole time. Um, and now this is the climax of the movie because it is the climax of the movie. To me, it just didn't feel as climactic as it probably should have. Mm-hmm. For me, the climax of the movie is when he's telling, you know, that uh, his Don Quixote story and William yeah. Randolph first kicks him out, which is right before that, <laughs> that conversation. Yeah. So I guess it, I guess it's a movie with two climaxes. Yeah. And cause it's told in two different storylines or right. in two different timelines. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and I'm okay. I kind of like that. I'm okay yeah. with that. I'm okay with like the more bombastic, like visual story uh, in the early, in the thirties be having this bombastic climax and the quieter, you know, subdued story climaxing with Orson Welles. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. That worked for me. Good. I'm trying to think of other things I really wanted to talk about spoiler-wise. Um, I think, like, 
I shamefully don't really know much about Upton Sinclair. And so watching this movie and having so much of it being focused on, like, this particular election. Yeah. um, Was really interesting, but it also was like, I kind of felt like, should I be Googling or should, or will some of this be revealed? You know? Yeah. Which, again, this is a California governor's race, so really no one should know about this. (laughs) Right, but Upton Sinclair is, like, a well-known author, you know, and yet I don't really know that much about him. Um, I loved the Bill Nye cameo. Which, that, I I did love it, but it threw me off for a quick second of just... (laughs) Yeah. Oh, this whole time we've been talking about Bill Nye? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm trying to think of what else. I, wow. My my thoughts have really just left me on mank after I did my Gary Oldman is <laughs> sixty two rant. Yeah. Um, hmm. It's also I think what's hard to talk about this in spoilers is that this isn't like a spoiler kind of movie. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like the plot, the time. Similarly to un, or I should say, unlike Citizen Kane, there isn't a big twist or yeah. big reveal. You know what I yeah. mean? And similarly to Citizen Kane, the movie kind of takes place all over the place time-wise. And so there's also not, like, this, like, linear plot of, um, you know, we have this set up and then we can talk about how it resolves itself. Um, I think, like, yeah, I don't know. I don't have many spoiler thoughts, I guess. Yeah, I don't really either. I don't. (laughs) (laughs) I, Yeah. I feel like it kind of left it all on the table to talk about because, again, like you said, there's nothing ridiculous um, that happens at the end. So there is no actual spoiler things. The only other thing that is really coming to mind that I want to say is that, like, I found the scenes at um, the Hearst Castle to be really riveting. Um Yeah. The idea of, like, this king presiding over his court and all the conversation and um, having Louis B. Mayer and Mank go toe-to-toe, um, having Amanda Seyfried ch- chime in and be glamorous and charming and funny, those scenes were really mesmerizing. And I also think, um, oh, what is his name? Um, the actor that played Hearst. Uh, Charles Dance. Yes. Charles Dance, I think, was really, really amazing as Hearst, even though it's, like, kind of a smaller role. Like, he doesn't do, there's not, he doesn't do a lot until that one big scene, Mm -hmm. but he's really great in it. And after watching The Crown, I I had a particular affinity for him. Yeah, yeah, he's absolutely fantastic in in this role, and I think he, (laughs) he plays, um hurst in a way that is obviously someone in control and in charge and immediately like you know without him saying anything or him just showing up and being there you're like this is him this is the guy who who runs the show so yeah it's really good yeah i love the the whole touch of like marion davies calling him pops yeah you know yeah <laughs> i'm like that is an age gap where it's like this is being called out you know yeah. she calls him pops yeah and she and she's his mistress turned live in lover like this we know what this is and it makes sense and it you know yep and it's i think especially striking to have a 30 year age gap that is 
accurate and makes sense. And then to also have two actors with a 30 year age gap where it's not, you know? <laughs> yes. Yeah. I think to put those side by side is such a, for someone like David Fincher, who is known for like attention to detail, mm -hmm. it's really confounding that this is something he just, you know, kind of brushed over. Yeah. Well, surprisingly a lot of uh directors do because <laughs> that age yeah. gap is uh happens a lot and i hate it yeah and here's the thing a lot of times i hate it on principle of like you know no women are cast in roles where they are you know 30 years older than what they're supposed to be playing yeah um and or you know that these age gaps are being normal these age gaps and marriages are being normal like normalized on the screen those are like the, on principle i hate it and for this movie, I just hate it cinematically, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I hate it both on principle and for for storytelling reasons. Um, and so that's that makes it even more frustrating. Yeah. No, makes sense. It's also just frustrating that David Venture is a, a kind of director that, like, I really want to look forward to his movies, you know? And, mm -hmm. like, fall in love with them. And that I could have with this movie... Minus this one glaring thing. Yeah. I don't know if you feel the same way about it. I think it's it's something that I, like, just roll my eyes at and move on over. Yeah. It's it's So it doesn't... I don't think it, like, pulls me out or anything. But it's just, like, this is something okay. that obviously um, could have been fixed very simply. <laughs> yeah. Um, if it was something that you were paying attention to. And it's not. Right. So, but... Right. Is it something, like, if you... If this was... If there was cast with someone who is... You, equally talented, but more appropriate for that character. Um, do you think the movie would have been, you would have fallen in love with the movie or do you think it just would have been the same movie, just a little bit better? I think the same movie, just a little bit better. I don't, I, I yeah. honestly don't think this is a movie that I can fall in love with at all. Um, sure. It's, it's just very inside baseball and lots of really good parts. Um, and I enjoyed a lot of it, but it's never going to, it's never going to have, I think the, the emotional pull, um, that a movie that other movies could, you know? Yeah. But yeah, had some fun with it I, though. I definitely had some fun with it and it, and it is the kind of movie that like piques my curiosity about a time and people in history that I didn't really, I wasn't very familiar with. And it gets me on a Wikipedia binge of <laughs> William Hurst and Lee B. Yeah. Mayer and Marion Davies. And yeah. and that's always fun. And when a movie can inspire that, that's always, like, I think a good thing. Um. Well, anything else before we wrap up? Nope. All right. Well, that's about it for us today, I guess. Um, Sandra, where can we find you everywhere online? You can find me on all social media platforms at Sandra Amstutz. My last name is spelled A-M-S-T-U-T-Z. And you can find me everywhere at Lucas and Stuff. See you later. Bye-bye. Thank you. Goodbye now. Goodbye. Go away. I'll see you soon, okay? That's it? Go home? Yeah. Move along, Padre. Goodbye, old friend. That's it. That's our show for tonight, people. 